0: I've traveled near and far, and in my travels I've seen some of the worst photography in the world. Things no one should see. Listen to this podcast to learn how you can avoid contributing to that disease. Welcome to the RGGEDU podcast, Your Grace, where Rob and Gary talk to drink the finest wine in Westeros with your favorite photographers. This podcast is brought to you by Sakana. Light meters have helped generations of photographers and filmmakers set themselves apart from the rest of the pack by helping them produce consistent results in any lighting situation. Light meters are the common tool used by every lighting master. Head to
1: syconic.com and start your journey to becoming a lighting master today. In this episode, we sit down with the godfather of the DSLR. (laughs) (laughs) That is your official title, right? I've heard it before. Oh, that's okay.
2: yeah, yeah. It's, uh, A, I'll take it, right? Yeah. Right. It's pretty funny. When the first time I heard that, I was like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, sure. Awesome.
1: <laughs> well, I thought I invented it, so I guess not. I guess, no, not. We, I guess no, it's no, not, not an original, original no, thought. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's been but, you know,
2: we'll, we'll, we'll give you credit for it. Why yeah,
1: not? Yeah, you can take credit for it. Yeah, I'm so taking Hollywood, it. Yeah. Just, it's Hollywood. your thing yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Alongside Rob Grimm, I'm Gary Martin, and today we're going to be talking uh, with Vince about a lot of stuff. Every Where should we, Hopefully. I mean, you've been interviewed so many times. I feel like we should start somewhere else. What's well, it's your
2: job. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Just, let's,
0: <laughs> l- let's start not by ignoring Reverie, but sure. ignoring Reverie, because you, you've told the story of getting the camera and, and all that uh, so many times. Well, Let's talk about the effects of it now. It's a decade later, right? Oh, my God, yeah. It's a
2: decade. It's, so, I think it's either nine years or a decade. It's one of the two. Okay. I think it was 2008. So in October of 2018, it'll be a, de- okay. a full decade.
0: So obviously, uh, it, it, it was uh, a clear game changer for the entirety of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, now that you've had some time to decompress from it, let's say, and look back at it, um, what does that change, man? What did that film mean? And and what are kind of the the, the effects left over from it?
2: I mean, there's so many layers to that answer, right? Because it changed my life. It changed a lot of other people's lives. And what's cool for me is um, that people still come up to me and will say some nice stuff once in a while. uh, The best ones for me are like, I was at so and so job and that made me just go full uh, you know full Monty and go into filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And um I think any any person who creates anything and realizes they have an effect on someone else's life, uh it's a really good feeling, you know, regardless of what it is, you know, as long as it's a good it's a good reaction. But um that's a little bit above and beyond the the intent of that piece. That piece was literally me groveling for four hours at Canon headquarters begging for that camera and them saying no. And to me, no is not a, – it's the a start of a conversation. No is a wonderful starting point
0: because they're talking to you. <laughs> That's you know, great s- advice.
2: Silence is disastrous when you don't get a reply. Right. You send a letter or an email or you call and there's nobody on the other, on the other line, then you're in trouble. But no is always the start of a conversation.
1: I think I recently heard you refer to that reverie as a terrible – Oh, it's a terrible cologne yeah. <laughs> commercial. <laughs> I mean if people only knew how that
2: happened, it, it was not planned um, – Literally, I I got the camera on a Friday afternoon. We were shooting Saturday, Sunday. And uh, I knew enough to know what I didn't know. So I didn't know screen direction, you know. Uh, but I had been on film sets my entire life. Uh, my dad is a set photographer. Uh, and I've been surrounded by it. And I knew what a scripty, you know, script supervisor does. And I knew about storyboarding, et cetera. So I insisted on at least doing a shot list. And uh, I invited a good friend of mine, Yoni Brooke, who uh, helped me. Pretty much co-direct the piece um and it was not a you know this was not a an effort this was not meant to be anything this was literally the very first time i ever shot video and i was just having fun with the lenses that i had and went to the most brightly lit places in manhattan that i knew with the exception of dumbo and um it's to this day one of the best jobs i ever had because there was no client there was no expectation of anything canon literally said just send us an email on monday They didn't want anything from it, and um, hey,
0: you know. There was well, also no manual. There was no real guidance from Canon. One battery. There was no real way to figure this out except trial and error. And
2: like it was just just, shot in full auto, expo- auto exposure as well. Yeah. This was before manual uh, exposure Which is existed. even crazier. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think the lesson to take away from that is don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, be serious, but uh, be open and let things happen. And, uh, the takeaway for me from that is there, there's many of them, you know, um, for one, it was the best and worst thing to happen to me because suddenly, um, I was relatively well-known in the photography world, but an unknown in the video world. Suddenly I was in, being invited by, you know, George Lucas and, um, the head of Disney, you know, Ornavive right. and stuff like that. And meeting a lot of really talented people in this other world now. And the problem for me is that I knew how much I still had to, l- to learn. All right, and I just couldn't get beyond that, and and I think the biggest fear, or the biggest negative of reverie or tension in general, is the fear of showing that you do suck or that you do make <laughs> mistakes, right? Right. So uh, in many ways, it was paralyzing for a year or so to like I didn't want to release anything because I knew how, I knew where I was in photography, for example, right. How much I had learned there, and I knew how much I had to learn in the
0: video world. Right, you wanted to carry that same caliber from stills into motion. Yeah, and one of the things I, that I, that I've thought about since this whole thing happened, I really wonder what would have happened if Canon would have had, quote unquote, a proper rollout, because you kind of brought the spotlight to this technology, to this camera, um, by having something go viral, versus canon taking the time to say hey this is what we have and the manuals are out and them doing their own kind of like it might have been a very different world
2: they um they had one of my good friends at canon shall remain nameless tim you know who you are um (laughs) said you're the best thing and the worst thing that ever happened to canon and what he meant was that he knew this was a pretty special thing because uh, they literally restructured their company after this a few right. years later into, like, you know, uh, Cinema Eos. I don't, I'm not sure that was part of their plan. Uh, maybe it was, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. And um, he went from, like, you know, showing a few XL1s and GL1s to people uh, to being the most popular guy in Hollywood. And he hasn't slowed down in nine years. Um, but they weren't ready for this. I had right. some PR people tell me that this was a disaster and, you know, I was making their life difficult. <laughs> uh, I was a thorn in their side. This was not part of the plan. Oh, you, just, you, just way, it yeah, you were just making a, a video. You but know? it wasn't part of a plan. You know, right. They like to plan yeah. things out. Corporate
0: culture. Corporate. 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 That's what I'm culture. saying. If they had a proper rollout, you know, you know that they wanted to do it differently. They, they, That's they, just not them. Yeah. So
2: Canon almost killed Reverie several times because uh, there was a point where it was never going to be seen. Because really? they had never released uh, prototype footage in their history. And this is a prototype camera, and the Japanese uh, technicians, I guess, or the, the people who were looking at the quality, was like, "This is not our final, you know, um, firmware or right. image quality, whatever it was. So therefore we, it's not we're going to get killed if we release this." And the irony is, Revy was released unrated, you know, just raw out of the camera to make a point, and uh, obviously it worked well. But it goes back to uh, not overthinking things. So how'd you
0: how'd you get them? To say okay, I mean, if they were trying to kill it, what? Obviously, you're bullheaded because you spent four hours with them saying, "I want this camera," and then and then spent, God knows how much time making sure that it actually got released. How'd you do it?
2: With friends, uh, other friends at Canon that saw what the potential this was. Um, The the, this funny other part of the story with Reverie is I sent it to Canon, and they were all at their national sales meeting, and I heard dead silence. And I was like, I guess it sucks, you know, uh, and I kind of give up because I was like no response for almost three days. Wow. Not not at all. Deafening silence. Deafening silence. And I was like, okay, well, I thought it was pretty cool, but I guess it does suck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I got that call, which was um, a f- quite a few expletives strung together to the point where I thought I was in trouble and followed by what did you do? You know, some, beep, bleep, 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 what did you do? <laughs> not again. <laughs> didn't mean it. And uh, they were like, no, this is incredible. Like everyone's watching it on a loop. You know, every single person at Canon is here for the sales meeting and we just can't stop watching it. And I was like, oh, okay, that's good then. Right. <laughs> and then we then started the, um, the week long waiting up to three, four, 5. AM for Japan to give us the green light. And in many ways that contributed to the build up to it. Right. Because this was pre YouTube. I mean, YouTube I think it was 2006, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, the point is Twitter had just kind of started, you know, mm-hmm. if you, uh, 2006, it was 2008, and YouTube was around, but it was not where it is today. There was no Casey Knight stats at that point. Right. Right? There were no billion views a day. Um, so this was pretty new to the point where we didn't know where to put it as, in terms of a player, uh, and Canon put it on their site, and they had more traffic in like one week than they had all year for all their divisions combined, and they got a massive bill for Mackamai. Uh, (laughs) Once again, you're a thorn in their side, right? (laughs) Exactly. And they're like, what's this guy? Um, But at the same time, um, it was just a pretty – I'll never forget that day when we launched because there was that buildup that was kind of the ultimate tease but not by design uh, because I kept having to hold it back. And I I made statements like I think I'm going to release something and you guys are going to see this. This is a game changer. And uh, people were listening at that point and they were like, okay, this has got to be good. And they were waiting up themselves. And when it was launched, I'll never forget like hitting refresh on the uh, – when we had refresh uh, on the comments. And it wasn't like one or two. It was like refresh. It was like 45 comments. Refresh, 150. Refresh, 300. Refresh, six. It was just – Kept going. It was like holy moly, what have we done? That's a pretty special feeling. It was like, right. Wow. Yeah, But then you said it paralyzed you for a year. It did because, um, to your point, you know, I had had a – 2008.
0: You were well-established as a still shooter at this point. Yeah. Well-established. Yeah, and,
2: and, you know, at the end of the day, I think we all have our standards and we try to live by them. And um, I I think it it took me five years to reach a level as a director where I can say I think I know what I was doing, you know, where I really understood – Basic and complex coverage principles. It's Pretty
0: interesting to hear the guy who's kind of been labeled the Godfather of DSLR to say it took him five years when mm-hmm. yeah. you came out of the you know out of the gate with the film that that changed it all.
2: Yeah, but it wasn't a film; it was a bad oh, clone true. commercial. have you, <laughs> got it. It's important to go back to that. And do you have a name for that clone, by the way? <laughs> no, I should patent it. Right, Reverie. Um, you know what you don't don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know where you're lacking. And, um, I, I actually was a huge, uh, cinephi- cinephi- cinephile, uh, you know, I mean, between Brazil and any Scorsese movie, and yeah. Terry Gilliam, I, I was a big, big fan. So I know and knew what the masters were doing and it takes, it's a big difference. And I think it does speak actually to HDSLRs and, uh, this world, it's not just about buying the camera or the lenses. You actually have to learn the craft. And, uh, the best thing that happened to me was actually, I broke my arm several years later and I had about six months to recover. And I said, how do I turn this into a positive? And, uh, that's when I watched about 130 Blu-rays. I didn't just watch them though. I would pause them and I would break them down and I would storyboard them and I would guess on the camera move. And I think that was the biggest, best thing I've ever done because when you try to teach something, something, you have to really, really understand it. And whether it was breaking down like Spielberg's moving masters, whether it was understanding Kubrick's use of zooming versus pushing in uh, in The Shining and why he always would zoom when there was something supernatural happening, whereas the you whole know, rest of the movie, you know, with Carrie Brown was on the steady cam and, you know, kind of complex moves. Um, you you understand the appreciation for the subtlety of filmmaking. And I think, you know, five years into it, I, I felt relatively comfortable in what I was doing.
1: So who did you rely on the most or what resource did you, you know, pick up to really feel comfortable on set? Because coming from the still world to like a a feature film set or a film set, just completely different.
2: Um, I've, I've had like the opportunity to, to shadow some really good directors. Uh, one of them was David Nutter, who's done everything from Game of Thrones to Band of Brothers. He's called the pilot king because he's has an amazing track record of taking pilots all the way through. And he's a phenomenal director. Um, I think a lot of hard knocks too. I mean, uh, I'll never forget the first time I was on set on a commercial and we rolled the first take and the AD yelled cut and everyone turned around and look at me. And I was like, Oh shit, (laughs) I need to give notes. But I was just so happy that we did our first shot. It looked great, but I had no notes and that, that changed quickly as well as, um, Coming from a photojournalism background, I like to be spontaneous. I like to be reactive. And that did that once and never will do it again to not have a detailed plan, a shot list uh, and schedule um, to work off of. Because I like to say you, you should plan on being spontaneous, meaning plan it all the way through. I'm, I'm obsessive. So I've also grown as a person, probably with age, too, but. I storyboard everything. I have spreadsheets. I have Excel sheets. It's insane. That was not my natural personality when I was in my 20s or 30s. I had, you know, conference calls, meetings, emails. I hated that stuff. Whereas now I revel in it because it gives me that control to actually have it exactly how I'd like it. You know, and every time it's 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, you're finishing up your day and you got to wake up at 5 or 6, you get that email and I, you answer it. How,
0: how has um... – Kind of learning the production and the methodology that you have to have for motion affected your still side, in the way you approach jobs.
2: Uh, it's so, with no dis- disrespect to other fellow still shooters, a still production is uh, a cakewalk compared to the average production. Mm-hmm. It's just it's uh, it feels like child's play when you go back. So that you know, because it's so free, you know, sure there's there are complex um, still shoots, but fewer and fewer of them. But there's a big difference between dealing with like three, four, five, six people, you know, on your crew um, and 30 to 60 to 100. And um, it's I think hopefully it's maybe better. It's maybe respect the process. I think too many people idolize being a director. Um, The reality is you are you have a very clear role within a group and it it is an absolute collaborative effort uh, if you're doing your job as a director. Uh, to delegate and find talented people to surround yourself with and let them elevate layer by layer what it is that you're producing.
0: Right.
2: Uh, and the credit all too often goes to the director. And everyone who does this knows it's not about this. That person is playing a role just like anyone else. You know, it is a very top-down hierarchical system because there needs to be one cook in the kitchen. You know, you can't dilute that stuff because it's disastrous. Right. But I'm not, I don't know that the director is any more important than the grip or the key grip. You know, uh, we all have our roles. And you learn that when you – and the problem is, you know, these Hollywood people give, like, these terrible speeches at the end of the awards. Oh, thank you to the team, the whole thing. Um, I think they just do it because they're taught to. But when you are actually – especially when you, you're you uh, bringing – you're basically picking most of the people in that crew at some point. Uh, perhaps the keys will actually pick the individual grips and, you know, the ACs, for example. But I get relatively involved. Like, I know who I'm working with, and I, I love that that process. Do
1: you think – coming from the still side, you have a leg up on other DPs, like in terms of like understanding composition?
2: Well, I mean, composition always helps, right? Um, Having an eye helps, but it's a different type of eye. that shoots a still image versus uh, understands how to shoot coverage and how things are going to cut, you know? Um, You know, that expression, killing your babies or your darlings, right? Uh, You learn that very quickly, especially as a still photographer, that it's not about that beauty of that shot or that shot or that shot. It's about... How does it cut? You know, how does yep. it sequence up? It's a it's a series of, of still images strung together, but uh, it's got a still image lives in an in indeterminate period of time. Uh, it's a millisecond, you know, captured, and someone can view it for a millisecond, or they can stare at it for forever. They choose the timing, and they mm-hmm. get lost in it. Whereas any piece of motion, by definition, has a set duration and speed, and arc or not. Yeah, the timing is pre-established, right? So. That's why VR is so interesting, because there is, that, that's taken away from the director in some ways. Right. I, I think
0: w- what has happened to a lot of photographers when they've made the transition into motion, they've stayed there. Yeah. Um, you're one of the few that seems to have found the, the work-work balance, you know, uh, between stills and motion. And you, st- you seem to be maintaining your your passion for doing stills, I think, in more more ways than ever with books like Air and, and the things that you're doing. Um, what do you think it is about stills for you that has has kept you captivated versus just walking away the way so
2: many do? The feeling of peace. Um, I remember after doing – so for when I first got into motion, right after every, I spent about a year, two years of just nonstop uh, shooting uh, motion. And I was making a point on a branding level. I'm no longer still a photographer, and I refused to pick up a still camera because I was like, no, I'm – initially it was a DP – and then, you know, after about a year and a half, two, I, I directed exclusively. Um, and because I wanted to be involved in every level of the process, it was very important to me. Uh, I, I like the, the wardrobe and the actors and the music uh, and the edit and the grading and the mixing. Right. It, that, that's the, the best part about being a director. Um, but the still world, so I, I, I did my first still job, which wasn't a job. I just went to Death Valley by myself for a few days. I had one tripod, one or two cameras and five lenses or something like that. And the feeling, the freedom of just being able to pull out a camera and not have anyone, no producer behind you with their watch out, <laughs> telling you how many hundreds or thousands of dollars you're wasting a second <laughs> or a minute. Because that's the one unpleasant right. part about production is that you're it's it's very expensive. Yeah. And um, I found that sense of peace again of just being by myself with a camera and a lens and no one bugging me. And that's why... Um, even though the aerial stuff is actually very – there's a lot of pressure because you're spending anywhere from a few dollars to several hundred dollars a minute depending on what you're flying. Yeah, helicopters are not cheap. No. And there's that – that has always been that element of pressure. But I've never felt it up there. Right. I've always been able to say, you know what? I'm going to get what I get or not. And the moment I think about how much money we're wasting when we're not shooting, I'm done. I'm done, you know? You so, know
1: also, over the last 10 years, you've kind of been at the forefront of a lot of technologies that have come out that – They've actually allowed filmmakers to get better shots for way cheaper, like gimbals and stabilization. Um, talk about that a little bit. How has that helped you as a filmmaker? That's a disease. Um,
2: you know, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's just because people always say you're on the on the bleeding edge or the cutting edge. Think about what that exp- expression means. Like, you're getting cut or killed for doing <laughs> right. it, right? It's not, a, it's not a fun place. I mean, the amount of times I've done shoots with prototypes. um, I I have gray hair for a reason, and I, I will die. <laughs> I will die years earlier. Um, and it, it's it's very sexy from the outside. Yeah, you'll die famously. It'll be good. <laughs> white Russians. White Russians will do that. White too. Russians will kill you. The, the dude abides. Um, but um, it it takes a toll. Uh, but at the same time, there's something very special about being the first to do X, and it's addictive. I'm a little less into it now because I've been doing this for. 27 years now, people don't know that, you know, I've been around since I was 15 doing this, uh, making a living at it. Um, And um, I just love the ability to create something new that's not been done. Like uh, the movie was a good example of that. Uh, I was the first person to shoot with that with Tab and Hugh who started the company. Um, And um, we didn't know what we were doing because they never had, had a chance to take it out and direct with it, if you will, you know, they, they did some technical tests and we were learning on the job. And I think my favorite part of, of Movi was that, um, the second day and as I was wrapping my head around what this thing could do, I, I was trying to like, go, what really cool shot can I do with this? Like, you know, every piece of equipment has its place. And I watched, uh, a bit of children of men, uh, oh, because they had those incredible one shots in there. And uh, that's when I came up with the idea at five o'clock in the morning um, to do that taxi shot where there was the rollerblader that would roll up to the taxi, put the camera inside the window, drive off with her. She was on her phone and then release the taxi and um, completely inspired by Alfonso Cuaron and uh, flash forward to. One, two, one or two months later, J.J. Abrams invites us to do a demo on his roof at Bad Robot. And he was very, he's like, this is, he was like, do this shot. You know, I want you to start on the feet of this person. And then I want you to, you know, as a wide shot. And I want you to push all the way in and boom up to his eyes. Can you do that? And we did, sure. We did it on the first take. And he was like, that took our crew like 12 takes with a technocrane. That's amazing. You know, we tried that on Star Trek and it took us forever to get that shot. And you wow. guys just pull it off on your first try it was like, that felt good, right? Yeah, that's mind-blowing. And then he goes, um, hey, guys, you know, I I don't mean to impose, but you think I can invite a friend over to come over? And we're like, yeah, sure, whatever. And, you know, we we have plans to go to In-N-Out Burger. We'll we'll change our reservation. (laughs) 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 And uh, he calls somebody. He's like, hey, hey, you got to come over. You got to see this thing, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, "Okay, guys, you're really cool. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm gonna go back to my office because I got like, I got to do a call. But about 45 minutes, you know, Alfonso will be here. And I was Like, oh no way, Quaron. He's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Alfonso's coming. And I'm like, and we all look at each other like, dude. And uh, <laughs> Alfonso shows up 45 minutes later. It, same thing. Ask us to do a shot, and we nailed it. And he was like, oh, man, I could really use this. And I I don't know if he was doing gravity at that point or what, but um, you could see his mind, you know, all their minds." The wheels turning turning yeah. and um the coolest thing for me was like you know um he's like are you the guy that the taxi shot i'm like yeah that was me it's like yeah, the fact that you know he knew something that i'd done to me was awesome because yeah. he was the inspiration and then jj goes like yeah, "Hey, did the girl with the red dress thing too right i was like yep and i was like all right that's pretty cool uh and that was a, a nice little highlight right but it goes back to also the filmmaking world right like we're just fellow creatives it was there was no like red carpet or you know arrogance or anything it was just like a mutual respect for each other's work obviously they've done a lot lot better stuff a lot bigger stuff but uh, it was just nice to meet them you know and have them inspire that shot and, do you and think that it. that technology
1: is basically going to kill the steadicam
2: no the way steady cam ops? no, no. It's, it's very different how so well you know one of the co-founders Hugh, is a steadicam operator himself and um it's a very different feel when you have a move on a steady cam. It's, it's, um, the camera glides in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It has a feel to it because it's bound by physics, so the operator has to move in a certain way. It's a very refined skill. Yep. The way a movie works is very different. Um, and I think its strengths are um, very often um, on, on a bit more technical shots that are complicated. You can do a steady cam where you hand the thing off or you transfer it from one vehicle to another or you use it for what a gyro is meant to be done, which is on you know stabilization that's very fast. But um, they're different tools. I mean, I think, you know, that's, you know, we were talking about the movies and me breaking my arm and all that stuff. I did a, a tour called the Directing Motion Tour, which is, you know, came out of the idea of how do the directors move the camera. And you, you understand that there's a reason you have a locked off camera. You know, when Deacons has, what's uh, oh, the gentleman's, uh, the, the main actor in uh, Fargo. Um, looking it up, but yeah. He'll come up in a second.
1: Uh, Steve Buscemi? No. No. Uh, here.
2: Uh, yeah, William Macy. How can I not that? William first? Macy, yeah. Uh, so when Macy walks into the par- uh, parking lot after being turned out for a loan, it's just a locked-off shot. And uh, he walks to his sole car in the middle of the, the blankety, blanketed white snow parking lot, and it feels so desolate and alone. Had you added movement in that shot, you would add energy into it. And the whole point is his life is at a standstill, and there's literal crossroads that he walks through. There's two tire tracks. And you learn that there's a reason you have locked off shots. There's a reason you have handheld shots. There's a reason you have steady cam shots or sliders or dollies. They all have certain energy and effect to them. It's a language. And uh, that's why, you know, uh, the movie's is amazing uh, for certain shots, but for certain things, like I watch stuff now, I'm like, you didn't need to use a movie on that. You know, you could have just done a dolly or you could have a handheld or you can just even just handhold there's it. It so many different techniques to it, whether it's uh, having the operator sitting down on a dolly with handheld is a different look than handheld or having them be rock steady or breathing or doing figure eights and adding life to the camera. It's pretty interesting. Anyways, going down a rabbit hole here, but <laughs> That's cool. uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a vocabulary. These are tools.
0: It, it, it makes me kind of curious. Your career has has taken many different turns. I mean, you really you started out as in photojournalism. Um, you know, basically winning awards for uh, winning a Pulitzer for for covering a, a war in a way nobody has covered a war before. Um, doing stills, doing motion. where are the sources of your inspiration for these ideas? Obviously studying other films, but um, do you think that your photojournalistic career has influenced the
2: way you do motion content? Um, well, it's influenced the way I see people and interact with them and my ability to generally connect with someone quickly because it's a skill you learn very quickly as a photojournalist. You have to because you don't have budgets. So you don't have money behind you to say, hey, can I get on that roof or can I get this to happen? Right. The only thing you have is your charm and your intelligence and your wit to convince someone that it is genuinely in their interest to help you. You know, It's not about deceiving them. It's about, hey, wouldn't it be cool if this showed up on the front page of The New York Times or Geographic or whatever? And their mind starts to turn, and they're like, "You're oh, afraid about losing your job." Blah blah blah. You have to, you have to find a way to connect with someone very quickly, and uh, befriend them, and um, make them complicit. Uh, oh, that sounds wrong. Oh, yeah, that sounds <laughs> make that, them... <laughs> sounds a little dirty, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, are, they really, are complicit. They, right. they make them a partner in what you're doing, right? It's again. So, so, yes, it's about so, relationship building in many ways. It's, it's yeah. all about relationships, and the same with, of the uh, the film world. Like you know, last night I was around with about fifteen or twenty people that are all in the business. We've all flown over all over from around the, the world to be here together, and that's that's my favorite part about filmmaking is the, the friendships and photography, but more so in filmmaking.
0: Yeah, photography. You're you're often more on your own. It's a it, it's yeah. a very isolated profession in many ways. I mean, yeah, you might have your assistant, your food style, so a few other people around you, but. Um, it's a very isolated business in many ways especially when you compare it to motion and it also attracts a certain type of personality very often that is someone who's a little more timid or likes to be alone you know one of the things that that uh, i think has been frustrated about a lot of the still community it it can tend to be a paranoid community in many ways where people don't want to share uh, ideas filmmaking seems to be the opposite people all seem to get that they're um, working on a common good Mm-hmm. Um, and they really want to share information. It's a it's
2: a very different community. Yeah, it's different and the same, um, but to your point, it is different. You know, yeah. I, when you hang around a bunch of still photographers, it's quite a bit of a diff- different experience than hanging around with a bunch of filmmakers, people in, in the business. Um, I think you also learn a bit more humility in the filmmaking business because it is so much big bigger than you, and you do rely on other people. You know, um, last night I was with a, a great pilot, helicopter pilot. He actually flies everything named Kevin Rosa. Um, and he's one of the best pilots out there. And when I'm with him, I'm like, you know, when you're flying, my life is in your hands. I have total trust in what you do um, because we do stuff that's not necessarily dangerous, but you know we um we don't just we don't ferry to work back and forth at you know two thousand feet. You know we'll hover and do some shots that are a little more risky, but never crazy because we both have kids and we all want to mm-hmm. go home. But you learn to delegate and you learn to trust others a lot more. Whereas if, as a photographer, you, you can just do everything by yourself if you want to. Uh, and that's fine, too, but it's a different process. Mm-hmm. So in
1: terms of budgets, yeah. where do you usually like to maybe allocate a little bit more money or invest in a, in a
2: budget for production? Uh, generally, you know, I think it's not my term. It's what a lot of directors have said is you want to put the money on screen. So, you know, where can I see this money on screen? Not necessarily to show off, but let's, if we're going to spend this money, is it gonna, are we going to see it somehow you know, on screen? Not necessarily physically either. But intelligently, I guess, is what I would say. Um, if I had, you know, more money or more time, I would always prep more and I would yep. always rehearse more. Uh, but That's a luxury these days, but it's still an important thing to me. Like if someone gives me five minutes to shoot something, I'll easily spend two and a half to three minutes storyboarding it before I shoot a single thing. I'll never just go and do it. Maybe more so now, but I have respect for that process, I guess. Um, you know, even like a few weeks ago, we did this really short, quick little film in Iceland. Um, everyone's like, you know, busy packing and stuff, I'm still going to take that time to storyboard those shots so that at the end of the, you know, the the piece when everyone's like, are we done? I'm like, no, we need the shot this shot and that shot and that shot. Or I can mentally be saying we can cut this entire sequence out and get done in time. But, you know, that's, that's the, that's the big misnomer or misunderstanding about directing is that it's not about being on set. 99% of your job is done before you ever set foot on set. That's why when you see Scorsese sitting there you know, in front of a TV, and he just goes, it yep, looks good to me. You're like, I could do that. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's <laughs> everything, not how it works. everything that's happening in front of him right now, he had a choice uh, or a decision as part of that process.
1: So how are you winning jobs now? Are you having to really sell yourself, or because of your you know
2: past 10 years, that you get to pretty much choose what you're doing? Um, you always have to sell yourself to a certain degree, and you always have to market yourself. You always have to keep finding the jobs. I mean, the truth is that most jobs find me, these days, because uh, I tend to do specialized stuff, um, I'm not a run-of-the-mill director who does comedy or X commercials for this genre or that thing. I, I um, tend to do stuff that's a little bit different, right? But um, the, the reason I paused when you said that is uh, what you learn in terms of selling yourself is to not sell yourself and too much. Like, don't you never try too hard to say I'm the person or you know it has to be done this way. Blah blah. Just people are hiring you for a reason and then you have to instill that confidence that you know what you're doing and leave a little bit of mystery there too. You know? How have budgets changed over the years? Do you think it's getting better or worse? (laughs) It's definitely getting worse. I don't think you'll find a single person in the industry who's telling you that budgets are getting better. Um, I think two things have happened uh, that are killing everybody to some degree is that um, the social media stuff is a disaster because too many people are so willing to do something for free Mm -hmm. for exposure or visibility and the problem is all the brands are getting used to that, and they're like, "We don't need to pay you. You know, we don't need. We don't. Have, we don't have money. It's like, you, know, you have money. You just have not allocated it to paying creatives. You have. Uh, my friend Andre says they have lots of internal money, but they don't have any external money. They they don't set it aside. So that's bad. And people are gonna. You know, I'm a little older, and I have other things going on that I'll be okay, but I'm worried about the next generation. Yeah, me too. Because um, you guys and you ladies have to stop doing stuff for free because it's not sustainable. And it's funny for me to watch. I've mentored a lot of people. It's like watching a slow-motion train wreck when people start this because it's the same cycle. They do two or three things for free or for a few thousand bucks. And then a year into it, they come to me like... (laughs) They don't give me any of the big jobs. They give it to those people and I'm never considered for it because they see me as the person they don't right. pay. You're known as the free guy. You're known no. as the free person. Yeah. And um I'm
1: like, yeah. <laughs> so if you have an opportunity though and yeah, obviously to get the work you got to have the work. And if you have an opportunity to shoot something, yep. you still think people should turn it down?
2: No, it's much more complex than that. I think yeah. it's okay to do that. We all do. I do free stuff. Once in a while, very rarely, but the creative has got to be. So you're, be, part, you're <laughs> part of the problem, too. <laughs> no, well, different. That's no it's, it's different. I'm totally kidding. No, no, of course. But, you no, if, if you do it one out of 20 times right. and you're doing it for your own reasons because it's something about, you know, an issue that you care about or it's an incredible creative that gen- legitimately does not have money. Um, but it's just going to be one of the best things you ever do. Uh, reverie I didn't get paid for, you know. Yeah. Um, I did after the fact. I mean, negotiated that. Uh, But the point is, I think, you know, it is a business first. Uh, You have to stay in business. So if you get an opportunity, do it, but just don't make it the norm. Um, I will often actually tell people not to pay me um, when I have something that I really like to do and they have a very small budget. I'm like, listen, uh, just pay the crew, cover the expenses. I'm not going to take a fee on this because you can't afford my normal fee and I don't work for X, Y and Z. It often does more for me to not take a fee on it and say, I'm doing this in hope that we work again together because it's a great idea, but uh, just pay the crew, pay the expenses, and we'll discuss the next job. Because the moment I do it for whatever it is, I've done it for that much. And they will never understand why I won't do it again, no matter what you tell
0: them. I think one of the things that that has also changed the business so much is is technology. Uh, As it becomes more and more available and the The amazing advances that were put in the big cameras worked their way into the inexpensive cameras. Um, A lot of people can get nice stuff without really knowing what they were doing, which for us, it's one of the main reasons we started our company is to educate people so that they Mm -hmm. understand about composition and lighting. It's Mm -hmm. just you can't just put a camera on auto and get a great image or a great clip and then go out and, and sell yourself. It's P been, for professional. Yeah, it, it's been, there's been a dumbing down of the business as, a, as an entirety, as a whole, when you look at mm-hmm. the way technology has influenced. Sure. So it has, it's one of those things, it's a double-edged sword. Technology is amazing, and does so many cool things for us. But has There a, used a, to be that, that
2: one person on set who knew what that image would look like. Everyone was staring at a black-and-white preview yeah. uh, out of the film camera. The DP was the only person who knew what the light would render and how the colors would show up and that was a craft that was respected and he or she was the magician on set whereas now everyone sees it on the monitor um, and has an opinion um so um you have to learn to manage that too that's a big lesson as a director is to manage (laughs) your set and the expectations of the client you know when i was a younger director i would ask i learned I, I, i i learned to Never do this again, but never ask someone what they think. Uh, If they're not telling you, just keep moving. Uh, Because once you open that door, there's no graceful way to close it. Once they give you their opinion, God forbid it's opposing to yours or they start to be part of the creative process. There is no eloquent or graceful way to shut that door. So don't
0: open that door. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really valid point. People listen to that. I think that's very smart.
1: (laughs) So so outside of that and uh, working for free, what – common mistakes do you see the young, uh, those damn millennials or the, the people coming into the industry making?
2: I think they need to, at, first of all, I think so many of them are incredibly talented and they're doing good good work and it's important. And I started somewhere, they are starting somewhere, and I totally respect it. I think the single most important thing that any creative can do in pretty much any business, whether it's directing, photography, music, anything, is to learn to be a business person, to learn to negotiate, to learn to understand what the industry norms are <clears throat> and the rates and why they're there. Um, I shared a, one of the most famous, famous, the most uh, popular articles on my blog was a very simple thing, the cost of doing business. And I put this very simple formula you learn in like one oh one economy, which is to add up all your expenses, you know, your cell phone, your computers, your, uh, your internet bill, your rent, your uh, insurance, everything that you spend, your a subscription to Creative Cloud or whatever it is, right? And then you find out that you work 100 days a year or 200, whatever it is, and you divide that and you find out what your break-even number. And people see that number, they're shocked that it's a few hundred dollars a day for most and a mm-hmm. few thousand for some, depending on you know what you have and employees. And every day you're not making that money, you're going out of business. Yep. And when you see that number, you'll wake up a little bit. Overhead it, is a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. It churns it, it away whether you are or not. Exactly. Yeah. And the worst thing is when you're not working, it's still churning and you're oh, yeah. you're going out of business. Yeah. So um, – and ask. So the other thing too is if anyone walks up to me, and I mean anybody, and asks for business advice, I will always stop and share my opinion. Uh, I never turn someone down on that because it's helping me. It's helping everyone else to tell them, no, you shouldn't do a commercial for Nike for free. Right. Because they can afford to pay people, and they do, and they should. And uh, you're not helping any of us by doing it for free or yeah. for this this budget or that.
0: Training the client, it's a, it's a hugely important element of the business.
2: I just yes. had a meeting yesterday with the client of a very big company where you basically have to walk them through the basics of what we do and why right. we charge what we do and explain to them, hey, the insurance costs this much. and. Uh, you know, um, this is the risk you're taking. We can not get lights, but if it's overcast in the day of and you want that sunshine, there's nothing I can do for you. I'm not a magician. So we can take that risk together, but you have to own it because you might have to have someone come back. Like I can't have that star come back. I'm like, then you should get some lights <laughs> or shoot indoors, <laughs> right? right? right. Uh, no, no, no. It has to be a sunset shot. I'm like, we can create sunsets at any time of the day or night with lights. You know, that's what Hollywood is. Most of the stuff you see on TV is shot at night, you know, not most, but a lot of it, you know what I mean? A lot of the interiors, mm-hmm. they, because uh, it's quieter and they have complete control, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, educating clients and educating everyone and just sharing information. You'd be surprised how most people are very willing to share yeah. business insight.
0: I actually like getting clients that haven't had much experience in the business. It's a great opportunity to teach them, one, my way and just to educate them in the right way. When clients have come in with preconceived ideas or they've been working in it. Uh, the business for a long long time, they can be um, a little channeled in mm-hmm. in their thought processes. So in some ways, it's nice to have new clients,
2: young clients, I should say. Any, any of the above. Any clients are good. And, uh, <laughs> any clients are good. Really and you good, always yeah. have to educate them in your process because I do things differently than yeah. other people. Yeah. yeah. I just did a job where we're in a Learjet at 30,000 feet, um, and it's cost us 73 cents a second. Wow. And that's before the manpower before all the day rates that's just for the aircraft right and um, think about that for a second yeah that's that's gonna add up real fast Mm -hmm. yeah and you gotta manage your time right and you make decisions up there where you say you know what let's cut that out of the schedule go right back to the airport and you just save yourself ten thousand dollars because you made that decision man let's talk about your your recent book Air yep that seemed
1: like a pretty heavy investment on your side
2: yeah it was kind of crazy and it was one of those things in life that that was not planned you know um those are the best ones. Uh, that was perhaps the most viral. There was like you know, Reverie, and then it was the movie to a certain degree. And I thought, okay, that's enough. Two, you know, two more than most. I was lucky to have my fifteen minutes or five minutes of fame, whatever the expression is. And um, then came this this uh, aerial project, uh, which was something I'd wanted to do since I was thirteen. Because we all look out of the window when we were mm-hmm. flying at night, but you can't shoot because the windows are terrible, and you can't shoot straight down. And finally the technology came where you could actually shoot with digital cameras at night from a roti- you know, helicopter that's you know, it's gyrating um, and get images that were usable. And uh, this magazine called me uh, and said, hey, we'd love you to do this article on the psychology of coincidence. And I had taken a cognitive science class back in college um, by mistake. <laughs> and i learned you know to study different parts of the brain and blah, blah blah and i learned about synapses and how those work and i said you know what every time i fly i always look at new york city streets and they remind me of two things you know three things you know veins like red and white the the brake lights and the headlights are kind of like the flow of blood mm-hmm. two um brain synapses the way that streets separate at certain times in a non-linear way and then three when they are all lined up like a computer chip this could be really interesting because they're talking about technology as well and for those of you still listening at this point, <laughs> um, they said, no, they said, we don't want to do that. And I said, well, um, I think it's important to do that because we they you know we want to shoot high noon. We want to shoot at this park, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I've done that several, several times. And I actually used the most two important letters or the most important word in production, which is no. Yeah. I said, no. They're like, what do you mean? No. I said, I'm not interested. And I and I wasn't. um nasty about it i just said listen uh with all due respect i can hook you up with two or three friends that do this as well and they'll be very happy for their work but i don't i don't really want to shoot 2500 feet at high noon over new york city i've done it a lot and it's not that interesting and it was a lot of back and forth and eventually they um they literally said do what we want at noon and then you can take the helicopter up and i will pay for that and you know you have to turn it in if this is the only reason you'll do this job really <laughs> is to, to do that night thing that we don't have any interest in uh fine just do what we want at noon and go do your own thing and the funny part about the process for me is that it was a young art director who said can you show me an example of what this will look like and i said i can't i can show you stuff from the international space station but that was from 100 miles up this is going to be from like seven uh i can't show it to you because it hasn't been done before and he couldn't process that. And I thought that was a pretty sad state, you know, because back in the good old newspaper or magazine days, geographic or time, if you told someone it's never been done before, like, automatically, let's do it. Right. Whereas now they're like, no, go- Google it. Show me an example so I can CYA, yeah, right. um, and say sign off on it. And I said, no, that's the whole point of why this is so interesting. It's not been done before. So that led to um, they didn't even run. They ran one image as a to stamp of air, which is ironic, <laughs> and uh, I put it on online, and it blew up, literally. I mean, everybody wrote about it, uh, almost literally, from, you know, CNN, Al Jazeera, uh, The Guardian, Pali uh Le Monde, you name it, you know, well, Geographic, they they all published something about air because it was the first time we'd seen cities like this, um, and that was pretty exciting. And so, again, you know, it goes full circle of reverie. Mm-hmm. Not all things are meant to happen. You make them happen right. out of stubbornness, and um, it, it, no one. And we had a great saying in the newspaper business: no one cares how the sausage is made; just care if it tastes good. No one really wants to see how it's made either. Right. And if they knew the reality behind this, you know, oh my god, you know, look at this work. Da da da. It must be so, you know, creative. Or I'm just as uncreative as all of you listening. I wake up every morning, we just like the same. Oh my god, what am I going to do now? But. What I have is a different tool, which is I refuse to do things the same way. If I've seen it before, if I've shot it before, or seen someone else shoot, I say no. Let me just, you know, kill myself, try to find a way to do it differently. It's almost a disease. I mean, I don't know where that comes from. You're just naturally an innovator. It, it, I, I guess that's, that's a fancy word for me. I'm just stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I, I, get, I get bored very, very quickly. Yeah. So I, I need to evolve or die, basically. And that's actually a, a, kind of a valid statement for
0: our business in general Oh, very much that's i think that's a hallmark of being an artist you right. have you one you don't have a choice you're yep. just in the business because it's what you do yep. and you keep going because you can't stop
2: yep. yep and it's uh it's just a, i call it disease i don't know where it comes from but there's a lot of easier jobs to do than this and it's much easier to do the same thing over and over again i just can't mm. i just physically can't and i get i feel ill when i do something right you know there's like a, a some some something going on in that brain that just makes me physically just ill doing it. Oh God, I've done this before.
1: I can't do it. Did you have any flights or cities that didn't turn out and you had to go up again? Paris. That was the
2: biggest letdown. So Paris is all green lit. It's extremely difficult to get permission to fly over Paris. Um, you know, big stars and directors get turned out all the time. And, um, we got some pretty good will and people helping us out. And last, so we had the okay, we we're flying that night. I told everybody and that afternoon they're like, Nope. Uh, we're sorry the permit's no longer valid turn out the president was in town There was some sort of function oh. going on but that was it never happened and that was to me as a you know i'm french so that was a big deal for me to photograph the uh, city of lights mm-hmm. right uh for a project about cities at night so that was a big letdown but um there'll be another chance to do that
1: so in t- I, I saw a post mm-hmm. i, I want to bring up that you, you made um in regards to can we, huh? we talk about it sure so what happened there? What's the story behind
2: that? Um, hmm, let's see. Uh, let's see. What can I say? Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Give him another shot of vodka. Let him to talk.
1: <laughs> um, this episode is brought to you by White Russians and the number thirteen. White yes, Russians, Canada. Red Bull, water, <laughs> vodka, energy drink, and Red Stripe. Well,
2: and Newcastle. The Red Stripe is still here. Has yeah. not been touched. Uh, the water and Red Bull and vitamin water. We are in Vegas just in case. In case anybody is It's unsure. day three of NAB. It. We're all a little crusty. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Canon, in short, um, was a fantastic ride for 10 years. And at a certain point, um, like any relationship, just had to move on. Uh, for me, it was mostly uh, – I can't say too much other than they um, – I can't tell you what it is. It's very simple. It's that as an ambassador for Canon or anybody, they would like you to talk about their products and their products only. Yep. And they don't want you talking about anything else. Yep. And they have clauses in those contracts for that uh, reason. And at a certain point, like I work with everything, literally, whether it's uh, a RED or an Ari or a Sony for certain things. Those, you know, a 7 8 A9s, yep. they have a certain ability and I can't deny that. Um, but I work on every job with a different set of lenses and different camera that is meant to execute the story the best. The right tool for the right job. And with social media and stuff that I do, I just got tired of telling people, I can't talk about it. I can't do social media. I can't show it. You can't, if you photograph me with this camera in my hand, I'm going to get killed. (laughs) So after 10 years of that, I just said, guys, you know, um, it's been a phenomenal 10 years, but I just need my, my freedom back and be able to talk about whatever I want to shoot with and. Just be open about it, and uh, I'll still shoot with Canon, uh, but I'll be a better ambassador perhaps for you unofficially. Who knows?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's the era of behind the scenes and showing live streaming constantly what you do, and it's such a, I mean, that's unfortunate, but it's such a wasted opportunity to not be showing, like, everything, yeah. like, you know, the what the new, you know, Helium's doing mm-hmm. and, and not being able to show, like, the new lenses that go with it. Yeah. That's I, how people learn now. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know, there's so yeah. much education that people derive from, um, seeing what, what uh, other people in the business are doing, seeing what their heroes are doing, seeing those BTS things. It's it's really important to advancing the business.
2: And it was a natural evolution, right, to start with a 5D Mark II and then yes. move on to, you know, uh, whatever series cameras, all the way up to REs and uh, heliums, et cetera, and to be able to talk about it, right? It's almost like you really want me to talk about DSLRs still.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, the, the, big, the, the big private joke was – after every, I never want to shoot with those cameras again because I shot with, you know, cameras that didn't have compression and two six four and whatnot that you could grade. So people kept hiring me to shoot with DSLRs. I'm like, I don't shoot with DSLRs, but you're D- D- DSLR godfather. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was then. Now Nicknamed I'm, right? by Gary Martin, everyone. <laughs> uh, I'm like, that was then. We all start somewhere. And yeah. uh, that was my entry. But now I shoot with whatever the best tools yeah. for the job. I, I pretty much shoot exclusively now on the Helium. Yeah. Because um, it, does two things for me to what you guys were speaking about. It shoots video and stills at the same time. You're yep. shooting 36 megapixel stills 60 times a second at 8K, and that's incredible. Uh, when I got that camera, I, I told Jared, I said, you may have done it. And he's yeah. like, what? And I said, you may have caused me not to pick up a still camera again. I think this is the first
0: camera that's really, really there. I remember doing education a long time ago, and they were mm-hmm. talking about that, but it was the stills were so far off. Helium, I think, is the first... Real
2: crossover camera. I mean, DXO rated the best sensor in the world, right? Yeah. So um, you are uh, one of my the companies I work with is very happy about this. G Tech hard drive makers, yeah, because we're <laughs> shooting a massive amount of data. Yeah. Data. scale yeah, let's <laughs> talk about workflow. That's, like, that's the only negative.
1: Like, how much yeah. data are you getting if you're doing about stills and three video?
2: terabytes a day? I'm just shooting yeah. video. That's that's the yeah. difference yeah. too. Is um, I don't distinguish it. I just shoot, and I know I can pull at any point a frame grab out of it. Um, and sometimes I shoot at 60 frames a second, sometimes 48, sometimes 30, sometimes 23.98. But at any point, depending on the content, I can, you know, most of the content is okay with a little bit of motion blur. Um, you can pull still out of it, and that's impressive, is that you don't have to actually change the way you shoot. You can use a narrow shutter angle if you want. You can shoot, you know, different bursts. What I really like, love about the RED that not, not many people seem to be doing is it has a pre-record function. So yep. uh, if you think about it, if you put that on, go back 30 seconds mm-hmm. and you, the moment you press the button it's recording the last 30 seconds so that's a game-changer literally because as a still photographer the hardest thing to do is to anticipate a moment mm-hmm. th- that what person called the decisive moment right. and it takes years of practice to just be ready to pounce and to anticipate patience patience but now back to your technology and new technology things you don't have to have that skill anymore you can press the button after the events happened after that punch has been given at a protest And you have the whole 30 seconds leading up to it. That's that's powerful. People aren't talking about that yet. I'm very surprised. So are you
0: at the point where clients are actually hiring you for a motion piece from which the still campaign is extrapolated? Because that's been talked about, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't really been happening, at least not that that
2: I'm aware of. Almost everything I do now still is being extracted, yes. And um, if they're not hiring me to do it, I'm selling them on it. You're selling them on it? Yeah, because I'm saying, you know, just so you know we're already shooting 36 megapixel stills right which unless you're doing a gigantic fine art print is more than just oh, about every single yeah. medium in existence it'll cover anything uh that uh, you should be considering it yeah so do you have the
1: same dynamic range as
2: as you would with the, the better film better, it's, better. Yeah. it's the highest rated sensor in the world wow. so uh, i would say you have the same if not I don't know about better. It's just,
1: it's excellent. Are there any drawbacks that you're like, oh, I wish you know, I had data My storage? It's
2: really just data. And yep. the batteries are getting better now and smaller and they're longer lasting. That was a problem back in the day. They've done so much to manage power management that, you know, it's kind of like walking out with a big fossil blood, right? And uh, I actually got the, uh, the weapon so light uh, with like a belt clip that it was, you couldn't shoot video with it because it was, it had no uh, weight to it you couldn't move it just you're breathing it was too light It was just kind of didn't have enough weight that's interesting you need to have weight with yeah, your camera absolutely so what are the lenses now
1: that you're you, they're always with you do you
2: have any um I mean I use everything I own a set of Leica R's which I love uh, that's my personal set I'll never rent those or lend those out those are just mine uh, and I love those because they're small and compact that's why I just went to Iceland for 12 days with one backpack with like ours, my entire weapon kit, and another case with a movie. And um, there isn't much you can't do with those. Uh, but I, I'm not – I really want people to step away from this is the best camera. This is the best lens. There's no such thing. They're different tools. A Cook is a very different lens than a Zeiss, than is a Canon, than is a Nikon, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. They all have their feel to it. And uh, that's the beauty of shooting is you get to play with all these different toys.
0: I'd like to t- touch on one more uh, element of business acumen, and you know, overhead is so important. We talked about that churns away on you. Mm-hmm. You have to really plan for it. as a, As a, both a businessman as an artist, mm-hmm. how long range are you planning? Are you looking at your studio and your work, thinking, okay, one year, five year, ten year, and to go with that, what are you thinking about your creative process and looking forward?
2: The most honest answer I can give. The most honest answer I can give people is that. Um, making a are only one small part of everything that I do uh, I'm a huge believer in diversification
1: mm-hmm.
2: and in business and doing other things investments and stuff like that um, that my goal is and I'm halfway there to be at a point where I don't need to make money from the creative uh, I'm making it from other sources passively so that I can actually do the creative that I want okay. I can tell the client no or if you <laughs> This is the way I'd like to do it. If you don't want to do it that way, it's totally fine. There's thousands of directors out there. You can go hire, do that. But this is what I'd like to do. And that's the ultimate liberty.
0: Passive income is one of the hardest things in the business to achieve because as a photographer, you're being paid two ways. One, when you're behind the camera and two, on licensing of the image. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of photographers in particular are really bad with the licensing.
2: And the licensing model has gotten killed. So that being said, maybe you have passive income from things that have nothing to do with this business, right? That's the true meaning of diversification is having income from various sources so you're protected, whether it's real estate, stock market, whether it's investing in rental gear, whatever it is. Um, Plastics. (laughs) No, but that – You got (laughs) it.
1: (laughs) The graduates. Did you know 70 million straws per day are used in the world, Rob? Um, no, it's
0: not 70. It's actually 55 in between the U.S. and Europe.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> thrown away every day. Every day. Can you believe that? They're not recyclable.
2: Oh, I I, I fly over uh, trash uh, dumps oh, all yeah, the time. Yeah. And so the amount of tr- trash that we discard is, is alarming.
1: Yeah. So what about education? For a while there, you were making a lot of educational content. Do you still want to do that? I'll
2: always do it. I like it. Um, I have a little bit of a problem these days in that um, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is stuff I can't share. companies that are very private so it's hard to share what i'm doing it's you may have noticed i'm not very active on social media or on my blog uh then a lot of work i can say for apple that i cannot share Mm -hmm. i never will be able to share because you're not allowed to take credit for it that's fine um but also it's nice
1: though because that costs more you know don't
2: yeah sure uh absolutely and they let you do stuff that's pretty cool Uh, you guys probably have all seen but i can't talk about it you know does that bother you yeah at a certain point you don't care yeah i mean I, i'm i'm forty two and got two kids and they are well clothed and healthy and yeah. have a good life and so good yeah <laughs> at a certain point, you get tired of especially when you're in in uh, a relative uh dubious spotlight um you get tired of talking about yourself, what you do, and just you know the experiences you had, you know what you got to do, that was fun that that the process was the gift talking about it it's like oh. But, you know, I've always been like, just let yeah. the work speak for itself. Um, but uh, I am in a little bit of a funk on, in terms of sharing, which is very interesting because um, I was credited back in the day for being one of the first people with my blog to share yeah. all the parts of my process, et cetera, do behind the scenes. And a lot of – there were a lot of kind of, you know, ornery older DPs and directors saying That's you can't sad. show how to light that. There's only a few people who know how to do that. Or why are you sharing all this stuff? Like, this is how we stay in business. And I have to admit, I've done a little bit of 180, not because I'm that guy now, but because I'm a little taken aback with how accepted and acceptable it is to blatantly copy someone and not credit that work uh, Mm. these days. And I think it's started with, you know, China copying a lot of stuff almost a decade ago. And there seems to be this terrible nonchalance about just duplicating someone's work. And openly saying it, do it like that person. As well as with gear. You know, there's some stuff at any I call this the year of the clone. Mm. Everyone's saying it's the year of full frame lenses. I'm like, no, this is the year of the clone. Like people are literally not even bothering to make the thing look different.
1: Yeah. Right. I know. And
2: that bothers me because it's it's if you're an entrepreneur or an inventor, you know how much time, sweat, and toil and money it takes it. to figure something out and do all the R and D. And when someone just swoops in and copies it, literally, they take photographs. There are people from competing companies that bring three people with their cameras to another roof and are taking pictures in front of the inventors. And what ultimately bothers me about it is when you do that, you kill that spirit because there's no longer an incentive to innovate. When someone's just going to come in, duplicate your efforts, sell it for half the price, and kill you. And that worries me. So that's maybe why I'm sharing a little bit less, too, because people have not acted well. You know, it's okay to see someone's work and build upon it and bring it to the next level. I respect that. But just copying it blatantly, I have a problem with that. Has anyone copied air yet? Within days. Within days? Really. Within days, people were flying in the same helicopter with the same company and the same pilot with the same lens and the same camera.
1: Oh, shit. And Seriously? somehow
2: they found out exactly where I was, what altitude, what lens, uh, what camera I was shooting with. Wow. Yeah, that's what bothers Within me. days. That surprises Within me. Within days, it was posted on Instagram. So, and then uh, yeah, that's other DPs were blatantly telling people um, I want to shoot like Vincent. What did he use in your last job? With lenses. <laughs> And they don't know that these pilots and DPs call me. Who the heck is this person? And why are they yeah. name dropping you and asking me this stuff? And I'm like, this is the new way of things. You know, at least call me. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> Seriously, call me. I will tell you. <laughs> I don't right. care. But don't do it behind it's, my back. It's I, funny
1: how how much people think like knowing someone's settings is going to like create the
2: image. It's not the setting. There's yeah, a no. difference between the settings. And uh, that's one thing. That's what it used to be. Now they're yeah. literally asking the person, where do they shoot from? Bring me there. Yeah. Now, I've seen stuff that is a direct copy with lens, altitude, time of day, angle. And, you're, and then that's not even that. If they were the same pilot and helicopter company yeah. I was with. And I'm like, Jesus, guys, you know, like have a little class.
1: Did you see the story? It was maybe six months ago. Someone copied a travel photographer's images yes. frame yeah, for frame yeah. yes. in like eight different countries and yes. places that were hard to get to. Yep. That is a whole nother level of trolling. Yeah. It is, Copy. and it,
2: it's not healthy because um, it's for those of us, I mean, it's not easy to come up with original concepts. It's a lot of, you know, it's not easy. Yeah. And uh, I like to say that um, when everyone that copies me is indirectly helping me uh, stay very active and continue to innovate because it's almost like, you know, thanks for doing that and copying me. So now I have to discover something new. and But it does get a little disheartening after a while. I guess for me, it doesn't bother me that much it does bother me the lack of credit and people coming in and saying look what i did i'm the first one to do this and people like call them out like no he completely copied frame for frame what so and so did yeah i think the the innovation part is what hurts and seeing a lot of my colleagues who make equipment and spend their entire life savings to get something out to the the public and someone just swoops in and copies them and sells it for half price because they don't have to cover all the r&d costs
0: yeah
1: yeah
2: I
0: think a lot of it ha- you know a lot of it when people are copying artwork though they just it it kind of goes back to social media they want that fame yep what, you know at so all, at all costs yeah like cost. there's this immediacy that has has become ingrained in people's heads now um, because we live our lives online yep. versus then living in the moment yep. and it's really changed a lot of um, not only the, the the business
2: but it's changed youth in general yeah i mean i i hear I hear about young people going to um specific sites in hawaii that are famous for being you know beautiful taking to jump out of the car they pull their phone out they take a picture and they jump back in the car <laughs> the, and they've flown across the world to see one of the most beautiful places on earth they didn't and see they never it. actually stopped <laughs> freaking look at it because right. all that matters is that they have it on instagram yeah and that's a kind of a screwed up, <laughs> it's, <culture>. it's, <laughs> it's, screwed up. it's the sad, same thing at uh art museums
1: we just had you know this podcast with chris knight yeah and, uh, he, you know, part of his whole book that's coming out in June is kind of making fun of all the people that walk around art museums, just clicking in, you know on their phone, getting it for Instagram, Snap, checking in and then leaving. And it's like you didn't experience that piece of
2: art. We had that before. It was the dads at the plays or the soccer games that were so busy camcordering the event. And I go <laughs> yeah. behind them. And I want to hit in the back of the head and say, put the camera down. That's your child up there. Right. He or she won't be six again, ever again. Right. And enjoy it. Right. There's a videographer in the back that's being paid you know, to do this. Be in the moment. That was the first start of this, and now it's gotten to a degree that I don't even understand. Yeah, it's hard to recognize. Yeah. It's weird. It's really weird.
1: What do you do to, to stay off technology? Because I, I know I'm constantly plugged in, and it's hard to get away. Do you, do you have that at all?
2: It's like anything in life. It's, it's choice. Yeah. Right? You, know, you don't find balance. You You create it. And uh, I turn the stuff off. Like, I have not watched a TV show in three months. Uh, I've seen Chappelle. I've seen on Netflix. And I've seen Louis C.K. That's about it. And I've seen a few Saturday Night Lives. But I just don't. Uh, I also have two kids that are addicted to it. And I spend most of my time ripping iPads and <laughs> remote controls out of their hand. And I force them to go biking or yeah. cook with me or whatever. And they love it. Parental controls on the iPad is yeah. huge. Yeah. So it's... uh. It's an effort. Yeah. And uh, the, the hardest thing is social media because I really love and hate it. I really love all the people I've met through it yeah. virtually and then eventually physically in, or in person. And I love the, the experiences it's allowed me to have and the people I've been able to meet and where I've been able to go as a result of it. At the same time, yeah. there are times where you're on social media or on Facebook going, what am I accomplishing here? <laughs> yeah. Now, what's the point?
0: Not. You're voyeuring. It's, yeah. it's not an accomplishment yep. in many ways. It's just voyeuristic at the but same time you guys
2: know about canon it, and i posted about it four days ago right yeah, yeah. Right. so there, it's a double-edged sword it's
0: community it's connectivity at the right. same time exactly and that's, and that's why everybody's so attracted to it because it, you can be in the middle of nowhere and yep. feel
2: very connected to people all
0: over correct
2: it's a face so that's also probably i'm getting older too but you know i just i just bought a house and the way i'm setting it up is the TV. there may be there may be no tv but it's not the central part of. have the you I'm yelled
1: at now. any of the kids to get off their year long from the porch? <laughs> <laughs> are you, not, are you that guy yet? Not that old yet. But my <laughs> point is. You can never be too old to yell at someone for getting off the lawn. Right. But on. my, yeah.
2: my, my uh, goal is to have one or two or three bedrooms. Or not, 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 I don't have that many bedrooms, but um, that are always available for guests. Um, and the, the couches and the place, the way a place is set up is set up for conversation. Yeah. And I think that's an effort you make moment thats that ever, all the couches are pointed at the TV, people are going to want to sit down and turn it on, mm-hmm. but if they're actually pointed at each other and there's no TV that's visible, um, guess what? We talk. <laughs> 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 so guess what? it's, it's like I, it's like I say, balance is not something you just mysteriously find. it's something you create. and it's the same thing with that technology. Yeah, really good point. yeah, really good point. I don't have a TV in my room. You know, I have an iPad that I tried now. I try to plug my iPads, my phones outside of my room. Oh, yeah. So it's not the first thing I do in the morning and the last thing I do when I go to bed. Again, it's an intent, right? Yeah, right. And so it's also
0: hard to shut your mind down and actually go to sleep uh, when you're constantly checking on stuff. You, yep. your, your Your mind actually needs time
1: to unplug before it can exactly. go to sleep. So what's next this year? You work on a lot of more personal projects, paid work? Uh, well, I hopefully paid work. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> personal projects is just a way of saying it's unpaid work. Yeah. Um, uh, some more stuff for the fruit company um, that's have you been to the new location I was supposed to I was supposed to film the um, I had a chance to to be uh, the aerial pilot not pilot but uh, I could have been whatever for the new campus um, but I it was the day I was moving in oh, so I delegated to a really good friend of mine that I hate um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I will probably go to the campus at some point Um I, I just go see people there on a base uh, regular somewhat regular basis. they you know, become friends with these people. And um as far as what I'm doing, um there's something I'm doing for them that's really cool that I can't talk about. And you'll that never maybe be coming talk out about. soon. No, this one I can be I can talk oh, about. Cool. It's never been done before. Uh and it's really kinda cool. Um and uh hope to share that soon. And um, I, I'm like most creatives, I don't know what I'm doing within a three week period. Yeah. Um, but, um, I'm also working on something else that's pretty interesting. It involves photography that you'll probably hear about later in the year. Terrific. We're looking forward to seeing it. Yep. Thank you. So
1: for the three people out there that don't know where to go. (laughs) It's only two and a half, actually.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Where can people find, find and follow your work? Uh, at Vincent Laforet, L-A-F as in Frank, O-R-E-T, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, or VincentLaforet.com. Nice.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of the day. I know it's I know you're, you know, completely jam-packed with stuff to do. Yeah. So we appreciate it. We do. We appreciate the conversation much, Pleasure. very much.
2: It was a good conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Cheers guys. To download this episode and the entire season 4 out here at NAB, go to rdgedupodcast.com. and also make sure to subscribe where we release a new episode every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, and SoundCloud. In MySpace. In MySpace. Don't forget <laughs> MySpace. I, sp- I hope that becomes the big <laughs> thing. It's going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> MySpace, we're going to blow it back up.
2: <laughs> all right. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Heed these words. I cannot begin to describe you how bad the photographers I've seen truly are. May the gods help us all if you are one of them. This podcast is brought to you by Sakai where being a creative comes from removing the guesswork. Understanding light is a tricky business. That's why Sekonic light meters are the perfect solution for any photographer wanting to get more from their studio lights. Light meters are more than just a measurement tool. They are a gateway to understanding how to shape light and to use it to create beautiful images consistently. Head to Sekonic.com to see how a light meter can help you stop all the guesswork.